And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We were there last week and we returned there uh, this morning. Well, I'm proud of all of you for getting to church. The Sunday after Christmas is the least attended Sunday of the year. Uh, and especially in a night and a day after um, in the state of Georgia. Uh, and we had the late game last night. And we, I mean, I'm just kind of, it's a large, a kingly we. I'm not truly one of you Georgia fans. Um, <laughs> I mean, we who reside in the state of Georgia. Uh, speaking of the state of Georgia and residing here, uh, my, uh, I don't know where they are, my sister and her husband and their three kids, where are they? Oh, they're right there. There's one of them. So uh, you guys may not know this. I have three younger sisters. This is the oldest of whom. She moved to Carrollton on Wednesday of this week. And so please say hi to them. It's also nice to have family here with all of you have, like the cockerices are related to everybody in town. And so it's nice is to put some, the fear of God in some of you people about how you talk about me around town. You're never quite sure in a small town like Carrollton when you say something bad about the pastor, who, who's going to hear you? So now I have eyes and ears out there. All right, Revelation chapter 21 is where we're going to be. We'll read the first five verses there, and then we'll read this, uh, the first four verses of Revelation chapter 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, of heaven from God, and prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation chapter 22, we read this last week. It says this, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Praise be to the Lord. Well, I talked about this last week, that experience and that feeling of um, kind of the letdown on a, on a Christmas afternoon. Last week, we, got, we showed up here at 11 o'clock, and many of you have already opened your Christmas gifts, and that's that feeling of kind of looking around the room, your, your house, and it's now cluttered with about 10x more stuff, and there's trash, and there's way too much cookies and candy, and you feel bloated and gross. And that feeling kind of extends for this whole past week, doesn't it? That odd week between Christmas and New Year's where we're not really sure what to do. You don't even know what day of the week it is on a week like this. I really wasn't sure whether it was a Wednesday or a Saturday. And, and your, your, your rhythms are all off. And there's a sense in it as we go into the new year often, and it's just like we come off Christmas and like, there's a mundaneness to it all. It's kind of like the experience, have you ever, ever had this experience of going into the movie theater and seeing a fabulous, epic movie? Like, you know, something like Star Wars or some, something like Braveheart, some massive, you know, inspiring movie, and you, you feel welled up and amazed and caught up in the story. 
And then you, the lights come on, and you walk out of a dingy, disgusting theater, and you return to your mundane, boring life, where it's a, you realize why you're at a movie at Tuesday afternoon to begin with. And what we have there is we're caught up for just a moment in a story, and there's something larger and bigger, but then it spits us back out into something that often feels story-less. But I want to end our time in this series. We've been looking at the story of the Bible, and there are four chapters or four acts of the Bible. There's the creation account, where God makes all things beautiful and good, and then there's the fall, that's act two, when everything goes wrong. And not just us and our relationship with God falls, but that's the, that's the linchpin. And because we are separated from God, the whole world falls. And then in Act 3, Jesus comes into the world. That's the incarnation, and that's Christmas. And he lives the perfect life on our behalf, and he dies an atoning death, and he defeats sin and death and the devil. And then last week, we began looking at Act 4. And Act 4 is the restoration. And what we are seeing in this story is that if this is the story that you would bind your life to, that you would connect the most mundane Tuesday afternoon to, or the heights of the greatest missions trip to, if you make this story the middle of your life, then that will be a story that is never boring, but it is caught up with great purpose and power, and there is an arc there that will give you life. This one I want to go back to where we were last week. We gave the first aspect of the restoration account. And the fourth act is um, when everything in a narrative, if you look at a narrative arc, the, the fourth act is the resolution act. When all the kind of, we find out, how does all this story resolved? How are all the kind of the open threads and the themes of the story brought to an end? And that's what Revelation gives us in so many ways. And last week we saw that this resolution involves a great reversal the reversal of all that had gone wrong, and that reversal brought about a restoration. And last week we saw in particular that we looked at our restoration in our relationship to God the Father, that we will be restored at the end of all things and do perfect relationship with him. But that is not all that is going to happen. Our relationship with God will be restored, but what else will be restored? The answer, the whole world. That's point one this morning, the restoration of the world. What is this restoration? What is it that we get to look forward to? It's the whole world, the trees and the forest, the sea and the fish, the people and the cities, the homes and the occupants of the homes. The restoration is heavenly, but it's heavenly that is profoundly earthy. In Revelation chapter 21, John is having a vision where he sees the future And it says there that at the end of time, he sees a new heaven and a new earth coming down. The word there, the key word is that the new heavens and the new earth come down. We tend to think of heaven and going to heaven as us floating into the air, into the mist of heaven. But that is not what happens. When we die, that's not what happens. It says that John says that the heavens come here to this earth. And the hope is that one day this world will be restored. You see, this world's going to be restored because God loves this place. Remember back in the creation account? What did he say at the end of every day? It's so good. And so God loves this world, and so he's going to fix this world. And, you know, when Jesus comes, he shows that this is exactly what he's going to do. 
Jesus walks through life, and not only does he live the righteous life, but then he, throughout his ministry, he does these things called miracles, where he raises people up from the dead, and he heals the blind and the crippled and the sick. Because Jesus is saying in his ministry, people shouldn't die. That's not the way it was supposed to be. And he's saying, I am going to come into this world, and I'm going to heal it. And so what you get in the Gospels is we might say if it was a, it's a movie trailer to what he's going to do in the future. It's a foretaste of the healing that is to come. Kids, you had this experience of the grief and the sorrow when something in your world breaks. Some of you got toys last week. And rather rapidly, one of those toys broke. Maybe within a matter of minutes. And what happens when some beloved toy is lost or broken? You come crying to mom and dad and you go, can you fix it? Or if it's in my house, like my kids come in and they go, can Papaw fix it? <laughs> and that is the longing that your parents have for this world. And that's the longing your God has for this world. A longing to fix it. To fix all that has gone wrong. This sadness and desperation he wants to do away with. And how are things going to look? What's going to be put away with? What does it say in Revelation chapter 1? Verse 4 is... Such a beautiful passage. He'll wipe away every tears from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. What is he going to do away with? What's he going to fix? He's going to fix death. No more cancer. No more loss. No more COVID. No more comorbidities, which I still can't say. Pop psychologists want us to simply accept death, to just believe, oh, this is the natural order of things. Just accept it. But the Bible does not agree. The Bible believes that death is an intruder, and God hates it. And so he came into this world to do something about it. You know, this is why Jesus, when he stands before the, the, the tomb of Lazarus, his best friend, And I love going to this passage at funerals to remind people two things Jesus does. Do you know it's emotional reaction to the tomb of Lazarus? One, the shortest book of the Bible, how does he respond? Jesus wept. He's grieved by the death in this world. And then it says, it actually, in the Greek, he gets angry. It's the same word that's used about the stomping of the hoof of a war horse. It's like Jesus snorts. I'm going to do something about this. And so he does. And so he raises him to life. Revelation 21 says death shall be no more. It says there's not going to be any more crying or pain or mourning. What are those things in this life that cause such grief? I think for many of us, we would think about relational enmity. People in our lives who have been there in the past, children or parents or siblings or old friends that we no longer have a relationship with because of some strife, because of some argument where there was discord. But in Revelation 22, we see that all the cursing and all the things that are gonna go, that has gone wrong here is gonna go away. We're gonna be a flourishing, a harmonious community. I thought about this. I sat with one of my children earlier this year who had lost a good friend, and one of my babies was in grief, crying because they felt like a relationship that they had had for a very long time had come to an end. And I thought, one day, this will never happen again. 
No more. That you can build relationships with people and know that there will never be any more strife. It's always going to be lovely. It's always going to be harmonious. The scars of sin and evil. Sin is going to be taken away. The sins, the scars and the hurts and the wounds that you have created on others and on yourself and the scars from the sins that others have done against you, they will be healed. They will be healed. And we all have scars because of that, don't we? The abandonment we had from as children, the horrific things that people have said about us. There, you know, there's a, there's a garish performer. She's well known. I think she, I didn't watch any of the New Year's festivities last night. I was a little bit too busy with the football game. But many of you know this, who this person is. Her name is Lady Gaga. Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times did an article about her. And when he wrote about Lady Gaga and part of the psychology behind her, he said that Gaga was the victim of horrible taunting as a teenager. There was a group of boys who picked her on her constantly. They would pick her up and actually stuff her in the trash can in the back of their school. She was taunted with obscenities. She was a straight-A student but became fearful of ever attending school over the verbal abuse that was heaped upon her. Well, now she's gotten the best of them, right? She is the star. She is known world over. She's a multimillionaire. But you know what? She said this to him. The scars don't go away. To this day, my friends tell me that everything must be great. You're a singer. Your dreams have come true. But when things are said to you over and over again growing up, will certain things just stay with you? And some of you can remember the things that have stuck with you. Well, one day the word of God will heal those things. And those scars that go deep will finally be healed. One day, all the garbage and the dysfunction, the patterns of sin and being sinned against, the ones passed on by your great-great-grandfather to your great-grandfather to your grandfather and now right into your life, all of that will be healed. And pain will be gone. As I get older, I'm really excited about this. And I'm not even that old. I look forward to the day when some of you will be without pain. Some of you live with so much physical or emotional pain. But in that when, when pain is in your life, it simply seems to take over. It creates a cloud in your life. Have you ever had a bad back? You don't realize, oh my goodness, I use my back for everything. And you think, can't think of anything else. That pain will be gone one day. The cloud will be lifted. And what's it say? God is going to, when he, we enter in, in that mourning and that crying and that pain, he says he's going to actually wipe away our tears. You know, the, the thing in my office that's most often used, it is not the books. It's not even the desk. I rarely sit at my desk. I like to sit around the different chairs in my room. The thing that's most often used in my office is the box of Kleenex. As people sit in my office and they either share various stories of difficult and painful things that have happened in their life and they begin to weep or, or they're so overcome with joy in sharing about something good that God has done in their life that they're brought to tears. But you know what I've never done with a Kleenex box? I've never picked up a tissue and gone over and hugged somebody and pulled them next to me and wiped their tears. It's too intimate. But Jesus is going to do that for you. That you enter into his presence and you come into heaven and you, begin, you just melt over all that has been done and all that it's, that's passed. And that will what will happen to us is the very hands that were pierced on your behalf 
will then take his hands and his fingers and he will wipe away your tears. But that's not all. You see, heaven is not any just merely consolation. But what does it say? It is the making of all new, all things new. God is to make everything new. Notice John doesn't say, I'm, making, I'm gonna make a bunch of new things. It's not like he's gonna go, you know what? I'm gonna scrap it all and rebuild something. No, he's gonna take what's here and he's gonna rehabilitate it. In other words, there's something in the scars and the pain and the death and the sorrow that's gonna be swallowed up as the caloric energy of the good and beauty of heaven of the new heavens and the new earth. And we will see with new eyes how God has used all of our sorrow and suffering in the tapestry of his story in our lives to weave something beautiful and new in a place that was gross and nasty and painful. And we long for that day, and Jesus longs for that day. You were made for that day. And Jesus longed for that day so much so, so much so, that he said, I will enter into that world of pain and sorrow and tears, and I will bear the wrath of God. I will pair, bear all that so that I might win for my people that day where I can make all things new. Mel Gibson might be crazy. Great artists often are. But in the Passion of the Christ, and I only use, I think, one or two illustrations from the Passion of the Christ about every other year. But one of the ones that's most profound is Jesus is walking in what is called the Via Della Rosa. It's the road out to Calvary in one of the scenes of that movie. And he collapses under the weight of the cross. And his mother is there and the scene shows Mary, his mother. And suddenly there's a flashback as it gives you an insight into Mary as she remembers back to Jesus as a little boy falling and skinning his knee and he cries. And then Mary comes back into the present moment as she is down kneeling next to Jesus in the scene and he looks up at her with his face bludgeoned and bruised, his eyes swollen, nearly shut, blood and dirt and spit matted across his face and he looks at her with a slight smile in the midst of this hell and horror and says this, Mother, don't you know, I am making all things new. That's why he came. This is the end and of all things. This is where you're going. We will rise to the new heavens and to the new earths. This is the realization that a new day will be dawning. Do you know that this is why Jesus came in the first Christmas? The first advent. The first advent is pointing to the second advent. Joel has pointed this out multiple weeks as we celebrated in our advent readings. Here's how it was said by one person. Advent means that death Disease, despair, drug addiction, homelessness, murder, hate, war, orphanhood, poverty, hunger, thirst, tears, and grief, they have an expiration date. These are not the original intention God had for this world, and they shall not see the dawn of the new creation. Praise be to God. The title of this series has been Everything Sad is Untrue, and I've alluded to it a couple times. It's a line from the, near the very end of J.R.R. Tolkien's book, Lord of the Rings. Let me read to you a little bit about this. Here's the context. Having succeeded in destroying this one awful ring, Sam and Frodo, they're the two main characters, 
They've destroyed the ring in this place called Mount Doom, which is this raging kind of volcanic mountain with a river of fire. It's the only place where a ring of such power and evil can be destroyed. And it's been destroyed. They succeed in their mission. But from the trials and their, of, their quests, of their quest, they've undergone all these wounds. And they're running away from this explosive volcano. And everything is, is crumbling around them. And they're overcome with their exhaustion. But they're miraculously saved but they fall and collapse into unconsciousness and they wake up. And the scene that I want to talk about is the scene when the care, one of the characters, Sam, awakens from this long season of unconsciousness, but he finds himself in the city of the king who is now conquered in a great battle. And it says this, when Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on a soft bed and he found himself under a roof of trees and through the branches of the trees cut shafts of light of glimmering green and gold and the air was sweet. And Sam said, bless me, how long have I been asleep? He stretched and yawned and said, oh, what a frightful dream I have had. I'm so glad to be awake. But then he looks and he sees a wounded Frodo lying beside him resting. And the memory of all the awful things that he'd endured came flooding back. And Sam cried out, wait, it wasn't a dream? Where am I? And then a soft voice speaks to him. And Sam turns and sees his dear friend Gandalf who was this kind of mentor figure in the book, in the movies, who he thought was dead and gone forever. And Gandalf smiled and simply said, Ah, how do you feel? Sam stared for a moment in shock and surprise, bewildered and full of joy. For a moment he could not answer. But then he cries out, Oh, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. And looking around at the joyous and beautiful place he found himself, he said, Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer of Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is absolutely, absolutely. Last week we looked at the future restoration of our relationship with God. And this came with an inherent invitation and even a warning saying, he offers you restoration, so come to him. Well, in the same vein, when we see the full future restoration of all things, we have here a calling. Last week we have an invitation. This week we have a higher calling and a higher purpose for our life in this. The restoration of the world. What God is doing, moving to that end, is God's guiding purpose that gives vision for your life. And so this is the second thing I want to talk to you about this morning. And this is where it brings in the idea of New Year's. What vision do you have for this new year? It ought to be the kingdom call for the world. Jesus came in the first advent to redeem the world, and yet we look around, and we continue to look at the world, and we go, I'm sorry, I thought he came already to redeem the world. This is not a very good redemption. There's sorrow and suffering and destruction, and there's war, and we cry out, what gives? Let me show you how this tension is actually seen and understood in the, in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That means it's here. So repent and believe in the Gospel. So he's saying, Jesus says in one way, the kingdom's here. The king has arrived. I'm here, he says. So the kingdom's here. But then in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, your kingdom, you gotta pray this way. Pray, Lord, would your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a petition. It's saying, I want this to happen. Was Jesus confused? He said, it's here, but I want you to pray that it would be here. So what's going on? It's like this. You have this world, and you have a world to come. 
This world bears the brokenness and the scars of the fall. Then we have the new heavens and the new earth that will eventually come down and remake this world. But in a real sense, the kingdom of God in the first coming of Christ has invaded the world. Let me see if I can give you an illustration from history. I've used this before, but I think it's the most graphic and explains it best. On June 6, 1944, a million men with an armada of ships unlike has been seen in human history and has been seen since was assembled off the coast of Normandy. And it was on that day that the, uh, the troops of uh, Britain and America and France reestablished themselves on the European continent. And they got a foothold on the beachhead. And it came at enormous cost, didn't it? Profound sacrifice and bloodshed. That's the kingdom of God coming in the first advent. That when Jesus comes in the first advent, when he comes and dies on the cross and he's resurrected, that is Jesus in the kingdom of God saying, I am here. And what historians understand is this about D-Day is that once we got a beachhead on that beach, that the might and the power of the military is behind that, that there was no stopping the forces, that it was only a matter of time when Nazi Germany would be destroyed. And yet the war had to still go on. In other words, D-Day was the first advent. And Jesus said, I have come. And yet, after that day, after we landed on that beach, it was what, another year, almost another year of grievous sacrifice, going town to town, pushing back the darkness. This is what the kingdom of God is doing, that he is already here, and yet it's not already here. That the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ, he's established a foothold, and it is still coming. Now, this is enormous and critical for our perspective of your life today and for this year, and it does so in two ways. First, this perspective helps make us, gives us a sense of our unmet longing today, the ache that you feel, the tension in your life. So I'm going to illustrate it this way. By a song, uh, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This is just, um, this is the most waspy sermon ever. I've got Lord of the Rings and I've got Bono. <laughs> White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, my, we are pushing the envelope. It, one of the th- songs that, but that song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Christians were like, I thought Bono was a Christian. And he talks about knowing Jesus and then, he, oh, look, I have Jesus, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. What's wrong with Bono? Well, Bono's not singing about his relationship with Jesus. He's singing about the coming of the kingdom of God. In other words, that Christians still wait and watch for the fullness of the fulfillment of God's kingdom to come. Here's the lyrics of that song. Here's what it says. I believe in the kingdom come. When all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one. Yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chain. You carried my shame. Oh, my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. In other words, he's saying, I've met, I've met my Redeemer, but I'm looking for the fullness of restoration. That I'm experiencing a taste of the already, but I long for the not yet. He's looking for the kingdom of God that is not fully here. And so that is the tension that we live in today. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And you're going to live with that for the rest of your Christian life. But this perspective also, it helps make sense of our mission today a lifelong mission that you and I get to be a part of. On D-Day, it took enormous sacrifice after D-Day. Day after day after day, 
I push into the darkness across France, Belgium, and Germany to actually get rid of the evil. And that is what God's kingdom is doing. And it is unstoppable. That it is redemptive kudzu. That it is taking over the world. That his blessings, what does it say in joy to the world? We're going to take his blessings as far as the curse is found. And he is using who to do it? You and me. You and me. You see, Christmas comes with a call. It comes with a call. It looks forward to the day when the redemption of God will be complete. And when it calls us to arms today to be a part of proclaiming that the king has come and what he is doing and to make manifest to the world the kind of healing that he's going to bring. In Revelation chapter 22, 1 through 3, it actually it speaks about this healing, the new heavens and the new earth as a city, that there's this river and this tree full of fruit and it's going to bring life, that it flows out of the temple and out of the throne of God. In other words, it's depicting the fact that ever since the resurrection, when death was first defeated, that there is a flood that is pouring out from that resurrection grave and bringing healing to the nations. And the picture is for the church, that God is pushing that river through his church into the world to be a healing to the nations, that we don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ to hoard it to ourselves, but to be a river that flows into the world with healing and life to those around us. This is why you're still here. We are to be the church bubbling as the repository of God's healing to the world. So the question is, how is God calling you to be a part of his healing in the world this year? What is he asking you to do? What blessings of God is he calling you to bring about in this world? Where are the places of darkness that God has said, I'm pointing at you and I want you to be a part of pushing that darkness back? The exercise that we have to do, it has to begin with imagination. It has to begin with imagination. Imagination is the more whimsical term for what we're going to do next Sunday. It's vision. What's your vision for your life? The New Testament is beckoning us in Revelation with words like, it will be like. It's calling you to say, oh, what would that be like if that evil was eradicated? So I'd like you to do an exercise with me this week. So I want you to ask yourself this question. I do this in all of our new members' interviews, our new members' classes. And I talk about it's called like what I call the kingdom of God gap between what's coming and what it is. And so what I'd like you to do is this. The spheres of the world in which you live, your home, your neighborhood, the city of Carrollton, your workplace. What evil grieves you that one day will be eradicated? Or ask yourself this question, what will it look like when the new heaven, what will Carrollton look like when the new heavens and the new earth come down? What will a renewed, redeemed Carrollton look like? And what part of that are you most excited about? And let me say, that right there that's the collision of God's story and your story. Of saying, I want to be about the ending of this evil and bringing about this blessing, and so you get to go be about it in this place. What is that for you? Let me give you an illustration. What might this look like? 
In the future, when all things are restored, there's one little aspect. Let's say, we'll just look at something very narrowly. When Christ returns, young men will have a purpose in their life. They will enjoy work that fulfills them because they're glorifying God and using the gifts that God has given them for his glory. They will experience delight in producing something good in this world. They will have skills, and they'll hear God's well done over them. That's the future. What about the now? Right now, there are young men dying, dying from purposelessness and despair. They give themselves to drugs and to a mere survival ethic. They are lost and they scream out in anger to cover a grieving heart that longs for more. They live a life where they are destroyed and they become destroyers. What steps in that gap between the future and the now? Between the darkness of the now and looking to the light of the future enters a ministry that plucks two young men from the flames of purposeless hell, equips them for life, invites them out of despair and life for the kingdom, away from the kingdom of self, and along with such a call, invites them to know King Jesus as their perfect father. Such a ministry exists. It's called Votech High. Larry started it this year. Mike Mason is part of it. Mike Cockerish has participated in it. Austin Shepard has participated in it. This is one illustration of standing in the gap, of saying, I long for that day, but that's not what it is now, so how can I participate? And so what is it for you? What evil are you meant to be confronting with the lordship and the glory and the story of the kingdom come? And as you imagine, may I give you a couple warnings? Be careful that your dream is not grandiose. That it's not pie in the sky, unmoored from the earthiness and the locality of God's call in your life. Did you hear me? That word locality is important. Because some of you, a lot of you, have had babies in the last two years. That locality is going to limit you from certain things. But it's also opening up to you a whole new vista of ministry. Some of you have had babies move out of your house, all of them. And that is ending one season of ministry, and it's opening up to you new vistas of ministry. Some of you have been through incredible seasons of sorrow, and that has ended certain ministries. But it's opened up to you new vistas by which God might use you. Not grandiose, but, pie, not, but very earthy, very local, very small. When Jesus talks about the nature of the kingdom of God, how does he describe it? It is a mustard seed. It's a mustard seed. And also, by grandiose, I also mean this. It means, so it's often going to be small. And what does the mustard seed do when it's planted? It dies. Which means the kingdom of God comes when God's people say, I will do something small, and I will lay my life down for others. Second, make sure it's a one that's not grandiose, but also make sure it's not insignificant. In other words, make sure that it's not based on what you can accomplish by your own strength and based on your own worldly desires and your own worldly kingdom. You know, the church, we know what the church is. The church is infinitely powerful and yet unimpressively small. Aren't we small? You know, there's a lot of times I, sh I roll up here on a Sunday morning, and I'm not really enthused about my sermon. And it's a Sunday in which I know half of you are going to be out of town. 
and I'm overwhelmed by the smallness of all of this. But doesn't God use small things? That's the way he most often works, is in the dark and the small places, and yet he is doing infinitely powerful things. God is the peerlessly potent one working through a profoundly flawed church and are profoundly flawed people. Matthew 16, Jesus stands before the gates, what he calls the gates of hell, and he says the church, the the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, which means this. He says, I'm leading you into death, and death can't stop you. So, whether it's big or small, give yourself this year to something God has called you to do. Something greater than weight loss, although weight loss might be something you need to do. Submit your life to him and imagine, imagine what he might do. Imagine. I used this illustration earlier this year, but I'm going to bring it back. There was a woman in St. Louis named Mary Nelson. She prayed and she prayed and she prayed for a child. God never gave her a child. She was out working in her garden one day and she was crying out to God in the midst of just sitting out there and just getting on her knees in the dirt and just going, God, this is the last time I'm going to ask. This is the last time. Give me a child. Give me a child this year. I won't ask anymore. Nine months later, she gave birth to a crisis pregnancy center. And that crisis pregnancy center gave birth to another one, and to another one, and to another one. And she never gave birth to a child of her own. But there are literally thousands of babies and thousands of mothers who have been brought into the kingdom of God because of her labors. Just imagine. Would you imagine? Let's pray. If you're serving the Lord's Supper, if you're an elder, widow, I don't need you. I got Weber, thank you. If you're serving the Lord's Supper, you can come forward. If you're one of the musicians, you can come forward as we go to the table and let's pray together. Set aside these elements. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you that what we have to look forward to is a feast one day. A feast when we'll be beyond all things will be new. And so, Laura, we think back to that scene. And yeah, it, while it's um, only illustrative, but to think of you thinking about as you walk to the cross, behold, I'm making all things new. And we come to remember what it took for us to one day be able to sit at the banqueting table with you. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would set aside this simple bread in this simple cup. And that you would use it to extend to us grace, energy, and life, and mercy. To remind us of the story that you've brought us into. And that the end of the story is guaranteed because what you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.